When you drive the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power, you can stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see yourself behind the wheel of the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Kia received the fewest reported problems among all brands in the J.D. Power 2022 U.S. Vehicle Dependability Study based on 2019 models. See jdpower.com slash awards for 2022 details. Do you want to learn how to manage your own investments? Are you ready to stop paying investment management fees and start building wealth? The DIY Investing Podcast is dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, and resources you need to be a better investor. Learn how to make investments through the use of fundamental analysis, mental models, and business management insights. Now, here's your host, value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger and I'm your host. Today I'm going to try out a new style of podcast episode. I'm going to just try talking about a single stock. I'll discuss its business model and its merits as an investment. And hopefully this will be useful content to you. Let me know what you think in the comments or send me an email at trey at diyinvesting.org and I can make more episodes like this. One quick note before we get started. This is a listener-supported podcast. If you'd like to support this podcast and my creating further content, consider becoming a patron at DIYinvesting.org slash patron. That's DIYinvesting.org slash P-A-T-R-O-N. Again, my goal is to keep this podcast free of outside advertisements. In order to do that, I've set up a membership program providing investment-based benefits to those who choose to become patrons of this show. Okay, so let's dive right in. Today's company that I'll be discussing is Gilead Sciences. And I'll begin by discussing Gilead in terms of its business model and then touch on some other key aspects of Gilead as an investment. So we're talking about stuff like durability, competition that it faces, quality, growth, capital allocation, value, and then any potential errors that I might have in, in the way I could be thinking about this company. So Gilead Sciences, let's discuss its business model. Gilead is a company that's biopharmaceutical. So a pharmaceutical company is a company that produces drugs in order to treat patients of their diseases or to cure patients of their diseases. And a biopharmaceutical company is a subset of a pharmaceutical in the sense that it focuses on producing biological drugs instead of chemical drugs. Um, and so it's a different way of production and, and so it has slightly different cost metrics and slightly different performance, but basically it's the same thing. It's a company that produces drugs and then sells them into the marketplace. So this is a United States-based company, and they have multiple different product lines that they target in their business. Um, the primary product that Gilead has is they are the world leader in HIV treatment drugs. 
And Gilead Science has a very high market share in the HIV, HIV treatment market. Um, in the U.S., it's something of like 60 to 80% of all HIV patients that are on HIV drugs use a Gilead Sciences product. <coughs> Sorry. So this is helpful to understand because one of the benefits of how treating drugs works for the company is that you provide a treatment and this treatment occurs year after year after year. And so from the investor perspective, Gilead is providing steady income from treating the HIV patients. Um, from the patient side, it's also a win because Gilead is consistently reducing the toxicity in the products and making them both easier for the patients to take and helping them to live long and healthy lives. Um, and so far, almost all of the major advances in HIV treatment in the last 20 years have come from Gilead. And so they've really locked down this market as one of the premier providers of helping HIV patients live long and healthy lives. So you kind of get a win-win in the business model for this business unit of Gilead because they're able to treat patients and they're able to uh, make a solid profit in this business. So the numbers they're making, they make approximately $15 billion a year from their HIV drugs worldwide. And from the investor perspective, this amount is steadily growing over time as more and more people um, switch on to the Gilead drugs as they produce both higher patient benefits and that lower toxicity that I mentioned. So that's really the first key business area for Gilead. They produce very high margins in that area and very steady income. The next business area for Gilead is treating is not treating, but curing hepatitis C. Um, it was a few years ago in 2014, 2015, that Gilead really hit the market with a hepatitis C drug that instead of treating patients actually had a 99% cure rate. And this was very remarkable because essentially they were able to bypass the standard business model of pharmaceuticals where you create a drug and you have a group of patients that essentially might live years and years and years on this drug and they need to take your drug over and over again to survive. Instead, Gilead straight out came out the gate and found a cure for hepatitis C. What this meant though, is that they received a large amount of income when they were curing patients in 2014, 2015, 2016, but that market has steadily fallen off because instead of having a steady group of patients that they're treating for decades at a time, once you cure a patient, they don't need your drugs anymore. So there's been a, this has caused Gilead to have steadily dropping revenue each of the last three years. So I believe their income peaked in either 2015 or 2016. And every single year after that, um, the company-wide revenues for Gilead have dropped. So here in 2018, the business model for Gilead is that you're, they're still curing patients of hepatitis C, but there are less and less patients needed to be treated every year. 
and the market gets more and more competitive because although Gilead came with the first cure for hepatitis C, other companies have come into the market. So the prices have consistently dropped. So you have lower patients being treated and lower number of a lower price that's being charged for that cure. So this is, again, it's been a great win-win for both Gilead and the patients because the patients are now getting cured, which is even better than having a treatment. Um, but also Gilead got a very large amount of upfront cash from this treatment, um, but that's been steadily dropping over time. The reason I explain the history of this is because if you were to look up Gilead's stock, you would also see that they have their stock price has dropped consistently over the last two or three years. So you've gone from the stock being up above, let's say, $120 down to a, it's currently in the range of $60 to $70 to $80 range. So I think it's currently around $75 as I record this, but just last week it was in the, the low 70s slash high 60s range, and it's been fluctuating in that area for quite some time now. Um, it's important to remember this because typically when you see companies with declining revenue, the assumption is is that something is wrong with the company. And so the stock price needs to drop. Well, that doesn't fully apply in this case because what you need to remember with Gilead here is that they've cured patients and they still have this drug that can be able to cure future patients. And it's not going away as far as a profitable part of their business, but it is a smaller part of their business. Um, so you don't have a company that's just worthless like you'll you'll if you were to read some stuff about Gilead you'll see a lot of negative commentary oh they have falling revenue why would i ever buy a company with falling revenue it's like well it's still worth you know if someone says hey i'll pay you $100 this year $90 next year $80 the year after that that's still worth something i mean if they only if they said hey i'll pay you $100 this year $80 next year and $60 the year after that and I'm, and all you got to do is pay me $100 now well, that's a good deal. So the key is it, it all depends upon what price Gilead's at. Um, but most importantly here is between HIV and hepatitis C, these two main segments for the company, um, management has now forecast that 2018 is going to be the year at which their revenues bottom. And so you might see revenues rising again going into 2019. This is positive because you've had a bottoming of the stock over the last year as well. And it's kind of stabilized as people have seen the revenues, although they have been declining, might not continue declining um, continuously into the future. And this is important because as we'll get down later into the value section, the company has been performing well on a business side while still having falling revenues. And that can be important because you, you, it's not like some companies where that falling revenues pretends some sort of chaotic end. Instead, we're talking about a company that has been making positive acquisitions and positive improvements to their business. And so speaking about acquisitions, this leads us into their third area of treatment, which is oncology or cancer treatment. So they recently purchased Kite Pharmaceuticals. Um, and Kite is a company that has a product called Yaskarta. But the main thing to understand is not the name, because that can be easily forgotten, um, but that Kite's product is specifically tailored to treat 
cancer cells on a patient. So what they can do is they can actually take your cells and they've actually genetically engineer them to fight specifically the cancer that you're um, dealing with. And so this has been revolutionary. I believe their primary focus here is blood cancer at the moment, but they plan to expand it into solid tumors at some point in the future. But it's really taking this whole idea of genetic engineering, the stuff you hear about with like CRISPR, although this isn't CRISPR specifically, to another level and saying, hey, can we treat cancer by helping the body fight back? So it's really along the immuno-oncology, which means using the patient's immune system to fight. But it's promising for the company because Gilead made you know, tens and tens of billions, maybe a hundred billion dollars by the end of it from their hepatitis C business. And they used $11 billion of that or $12 billion of that to purchase this kite pharmaceutical company, which has recently had this, their product approved for the market and has started selling into this as a growing business now um, to become what looks like they will become a leader in cancer treatment going forward. So you have two really strong ongoing businesses in HIV and hepatitis C, and you have a third business in cancer treatment, which looks very, very promising for the future. And this is going to be one of the standing pillars of the future Gilead that's going to see your revenue grow as they continue to build out their ability to treat cancer in many different cancers. But the key is as well that they, because it's a tailored process, it's also costly but what that means is that also allows them to demand a high payment and response from the market um, from this cutting-edge treatment. And so we're going to see the ability for Gilead to earn a lot of money in cancer treatment as they kind of push the envelope as one of the two market leaders in this industry. So that brings us to the fourth section, fourth business um, area that... Gilead is focusing on and it's inflammation. So they have one drug. Um, they, well, they have multiple drugs, but they have one key drug that's going through trials right now. And it's expected that by the end of the year or, or into 2019, we're going to get final feedback on these inflama- this inflama- inflammation drug, which could open up a fourth business unit um, for a lot of high income growth in here. So you're talking potentially blockbuster, potentially billion dollar drug. Um, if they pass their phase three trials um, in the next year. So again, it's another growth driver and inflammation that they have. And then the fifth um, business area for Gilead is called NASH. And it's really a liver disease, non-alcoholic liver disease that they're trying to treat. This is really one of the largest markets um, that's on the horizon. It's expected to be the treatment potential as far as investor income across the whole market. So not just Gilead, but all the people that are going to play in the market is projected to be over $30 billion in 2020. Um, this is a market that no one's really expected to enter until 20 late 2019 or 2020. So this, that Gilead, no, there's no drug on the market yet to treat it, but basically it's the number one cause of the need for liver transplants. And it's generally linked to obesity. So you have a growing obesity problem in America and the rest of the countries around the world. And this is leading to a growing need for finding a treatment for NASH because NASH is 
becoming a major cause of death if you're unable to get um, liver transplants. Um, so it, it's really key because Gilead is trying to be a market leader in this space. There's currently no market leader, but they have a very promising set of drugs that they're trying to get through clinical trials um, by the end of 2019 and into 2020 so that in, when 2020 comes around and a lot of market players are trying to enter this space, Gilead can be one of them and take some portion of this annual $30 billion market. Um, which is critical when you think about Gilead's expected revenue this year is somewhere in the 20 to 21, 22 billion dollar range. So you have a market that's larger than all of Gilead's current business. And if they could capture half of that, a quarter of that, you could see massive growth from this fifth business area. So those are the five business areas. Right now you have really have two key players. You have a steadfast, a steady income from HIV, you have a declining but solid income contributor from hepatitis C, and then you have three really growth areas in oncology, inflammation, and liver disease. So why is Gilead interesting? And that kind of brings us to durability. And, and, and durability kind of ties in with my other one is competition. So I'll kind of talk about them at the same time. And and what's interesting about pharmaceutical companies is although they don't have an infinite durability, you can't, you know, you can't think about it as you would like a Coca-Cola company and say, hey, Coca-Cola is going to be around for hundreds of years. They do have durability in the range of decades because pharmaceutical companies, when they produce drugs, they have patent protection on those drugs, which means when they bring a drug successfully to market and it's approved by the FDA, no one else is allowed to make that drug for a set number of years. Maybe that's five years, 10 years, 15 years, but they have a specific time where they have market exclusivity to market their drug, which means they have the pricing power that they need there, but also it is easy for them to project out and say, hey, it's right now, it's 2018. In 2023, we're still going to have the same amount of profit because we know we're going to have the same market share and we know we're going to face very little competition. So it's not that, they, that pharmaceutical companies face no competition, although some of them do. Um, it's that even if they face competition, it's going to be with another pharmaceutical company who has their own patent and drug. So you might have two competitors. You might have one company, two companies, or three companies in a single market. And they can all price their drugs in a way where they know they don't have to face that competition. So from a paying payer standpoint, this is less than ideal because it means that you're going to be paying a high price. But from the investor side, you have a company that is getting paid its cost of capital, you know, the cost as an investor that you put your money in and you want to return on it, you're easily able to get paid your cost of capital because you don't face rampant competition until you lose patent protection. And this gives you durability through a period of years that allows you to model out your income. And that's really key because when you're making an investment, the ability to say, hey, I'm going to make you know, $5 billion every year for the next five years is critical because now you can plan to spend a lot of money on R&D. You can plan to pay a lot of dividends to investors and you can pay, you can do share buybacks or you can acquire new companies and new drugs. So the pharmaceutical space is a very interesting space to invest in because you're, all the companies in this space are 
that are major pharmaceutical companies. So we're talking about the companies that have market caps, 50 billion, hundred billion, $200 billion. These super massive pharmaceutical companies of which Gilead is one of them have massive staying power and massive advantages because their drugs are treating and helping improve the lives of so many people that society has pretty much decided that they are allowed to make massive profits because they're providing so much value to society that they are earning those profits by taking the risk to fund those investments into R&D. Um, so from the durability side, Gilead is very durable. It doesn't mean that though there's an expiration date. So you kind of really have to look at the timing of expiration of patents and understand how that works because really one of the big risks with the pharmaceutical company is that you would pay for high profits now and yet the patents expire next year. So the pro- your profits could drop by 80% the year after you lose patent protection because now generic drugs come into the market and you have to lower your price. You're still going to have a business, but your model needs to take into that account. So generally these companies are constantly innovating and constantly improving their offering. And that's why you have these two you know, key businesses like HIV and hepatitis C. But at the same time, the company is developing three growth businesses that, it, that will replace those incomes once HIV and hepatitis C lose their patent protection. That's really the way that these companies are designed. So again, I already touched on top competition. You know, you're really going to be competing with one, two, or three, you know, one or two other competitors if you have competitors in a market. But mainly, you know, whoever's drug works the best is going to own most of the market. And that's what we see with HIV. It's why Gilead has a large market share that they've been able to defend for a long period of time is because they have the best drugs in that market. So this really brings us into quality. Um, Gilead has an amazingly high quality business. The margins on pharmaceutical drugs can sometimes be ridiculous because they are measured in a way that is different from a product like a physical product like an iPhone or a copier or a computer or a a car. In those products, there's a large amount of material cost involved. So you have a major amount of material cost and you have a major amount of cost of people's time. But when you think about what goes into the cost of a drug, let's say a pill. Now, a lot of times the pills, it might cost three or four billion dollars to create that first pill. And then it might cost 50 cents to produce the next hundred million pills. And so what happens is that your gross margins on these businesses can sometimes be obscene. Like, so Gilead's gross margins at times you're talking 50, 60, 70, 80, or 90% margins on some of these drugs because the big cost is in the R&D. And the way that gap earnings is accounted is that R&D isn't rolled directly into those cap costs as a capitalized expense, but it's more taken as annual expense along the road, which means that on paper, once you have a market and once you have a leading drug like the HIV drug or the hepatitis C drugs and those have been approved and you've done all the research and you've figured out how to ma- manufacture them everything from then on becomes profit and so 
when you have these things, so like if you're looking to buy into Gilead Sciences today or this year, what you really have is you have these huge cash cows that are going to be just throwing off cash for years and years and years. And you have to decide, okay, can can management handle this cash? Is they're going to use it in positive ways? And so almost always this involves reinvesting it into R&D. So instead of saying, okay, well, we make all this profit, we're not going to do anything anymore. In order to keep that profit, you have to invest in new drugs, improvements on the drugs, and that's what they've been doing in HIV, hepatitis C. That's how you get these improvements in treatment. But it also means you have these acquisitions, like I mentioned, of buying Kite, which is their cancer supplement part. So from the quality side, though, I mean, there's no doubt they're earning their cost of capital. They're earning well over 10% or 15% return on equity because this profit is just massively, I mean, it's like they're printing money um, once you have these drugs completed. But it's a bit of a misnomer because it could also mean that all that money that they create could be burned away in R&D that doesn't pay off. So, for instance, cancer treatments have historically spent huge areas where companies have spent billions, tens of billions, and hundreds of billions of dollars for very little improvement at all. And so what happens is you could earn $100 billion from their hepatitis C franchise, spend all $100 billion on R&D, and have that R&D create no new products because they're just trying to get throw something to stick against the wall and nothing does. And the investor loses all of that. You didn't get any dividends out of that. You didn't get any improvement to the bottom line for the company, even though you showed tens of billions of dollars in profits for years and years and years. So that's really the quality risk on these companies. But when you evaluate quality, you don't want to think about that all on its own. You're really just thinking, okay, these the inherent business characteristic of being high margin, high return on capital. Um, which is basically infinite because the co- the actual capital that you keep invested in the business is so low compared to the profit that you're making um, that you have a very, very high quality business. Um, in terms of growth though, which is another key part of valuing the company, it's much harder because with pharmaceutical companies, you have to be extremely careful to assume growth because as I talked about patent protection earlier, they might have patent protection for five or 10 years and you might be able to grow through those 10 years and then at the end of those 10 years, you need to cut off because in any projections you do in terms of say discounted cash flows, because although they produce a lot of cash now, there's always the threat that 10 years from now, they're gonna produce no cash from that business. So it's very unlike other businesses and it's where sometimes people are seen as risky because it's, you have to truly understand how these these patent roll-offs work in this company. Um, so generally, I wouldn't project much growth for Gilead. I think they have some solid growth opportunity in HIV for the duration of patent protection, which looks right now to reach until 2030, 2032 timeframe, somewhere in that range. There's some dispute over where that actually is going to end up. Um, but... So that's really the key part of valuing this business is their HIV business and then some uncertainty on how their growth strategies might work. But what you really need to know to make a decision on whether to invest in Gilead or not is how is management going to allocate that capital? Because we know Gilead's going to produce tens of billions of dollars in profit over the coming decade. But what we don't know 
inherently at least, is how is the management going to cap- allocate that capital? So if that management earns tens of billions of dollars in profit, what are they going to do with it? Are they going to pay dividends? Are they going to buy back stock? Are they going to acquire new companies? Or are they going to throw it all into research? So in during the time in 2014, 2015, 2016, when hepatitis C revenues were extremely high, Gilead had a very high buyback program. They bought back a lot of shares at relatively high prices. And then when the prices fell to the $60 and $70 range, they cut their buyback. Now, on the front, this is bad for the investor because what you would want a a management to do is to buy back stock when the stock price is low and not buy back stock when the stock price is high. Unfortunately, we can't control what management does with the capital. We can only judge based upon how they've done it in the past. And really the, the, the only concerning piece with Gilead is how they have allocated their capital because I don't like seeing a management that spends buybacks when stock prices are high but then cuts them when they're low. Um, it makes me feel like they are not acting with an investor's best interest at heart. Now, as a caveat to that, management has talked about why they made that decision. And they say the decision is not based upon, oh, price per se. They're really trying to invest money in the growth of their business, which is something investors should always want to hear. If the comp- if management thinks they have a lot of growth opportunities, then having your money invested in high return growth opportunities is good for you. Because traditionally in pharmaceuticals, if management knows what they're doing and they make good acquisitions and they do good with R&D spending, they have extremely high returns on capital and equity. We've seen that with Gilead and you can see it with other pharmaceutical companies. And on the acquisition side, Gilead has been phenomenal. So the hepatitis C cure that they had, they actually acquired that cure from another company immediately after it was proven to work. And they acquired it for something in the 10, 11, 12 billion dollar range. And they've earned 50 plus billion dollars already from that business with the expectation it probably earned 100 billion dollars approximately or more over the course of its full lifetime of patent protection. That's incredible capital allocation. To earn a 10x return on your money from an acquisition is exactly what an investor wants. And it sounds like when you listen to management that they feel they have a similar possibility, but more of a long-term sustainable possibility from the acquisitions they're making now in cancer treatment and other areas. So although you have a black mark on the company for stopping buybacks when the stock price is low, the the game's not over yet. It's still yet to be determined if the acquisitions that the company is currently working on and the massive increases in R&D they're throwing the money into are going to pay off. Now, on the other hand, they are paying a, a solid dividend. Um, I, I think the dividend yield is currently in the 25 to 3% range, depending upon what the stock price is at when you listen to this. Um, but they've been growing the dividend um, by about 10% a year over the last couple of years, which has been very positive because they're growing it from, um, they were originally growing it from essentially only paying out like 20% of the the dividend of their earnings. So now it's up to 30 or 40%, somewhere in that range, which is a very solid point for the company to have a growing dividend. Um, so you, the fact that they're paying a dividend is going to be very positive for the investor from a capital allocation point of view.
So I think it's a mixed bag on capital allocation. Um, if I didn't think it was a mixed bag, I, I would not be interested at all in investing in the company because normally that red flag on stopping the buybacks would be a big concern for me. But I think the high quality that this company is, plus they're insistent on paying a dividend, a growing dividend, um, and at least on the surface stating that the reason for the stopped buybacks was for internal growth reasons is promising. So in terms of capital allocation, I'm really wait and see. So let's dive into value. Um, Gilead as a company, it is very difficult to value. Um, Obviously, it's a cash cow, as I said, which means that we're talking about a company that's going to be growing their earnings over time. Or not necessarily growing out there, sort of making a lot of profit now. And so, what we need to think about is how much is that profit worth and discount that profit back to the present uh, while also understanding that, again, how that capital is allocated is going to be critical. Um, so, if we really just think about what the, you know, if we try and estimate what their sales are, um, you're kind of given guidance by the company. But, you know, if I just, take some of the mid-range of that guidance and say sales is like $20.5 billion this year. Um, You work out to an earnings per share, very conservative numbers of something in the $4.5 to $5 range. Um, And, you know, really looking at that being there and then kind of growing somewhat over time. Because, this has declined significantly over the past few years, as I said, but we're looking at the business finally leveling off in 2018 and 2019. So in my model, I'm really focusing on modeling the next 10 years in a very conservative manner. So I'm saying that your HIV sales are your base. So HIV sales are projected to be, you know, from 15 to 16 or so. 16 and a half billion dollars this year so that's you know two-thirds to three quarters of the income for the whole company is coming from um hiv sales which is really your base and since we know we have patent protection for another 10 years in this business i can project that pretty easily as kind of growing you know three to five percent a year or more um over that time frame which is really promising because we have you know, kite coming into the picture. We have the possibility for Nash treatment. We have the possibility for um, treatment for the inflammation, as I mentioned before. But the key area that I think is important, and this is why I actually did a discounted cash flow model that's kind of complex, is I have to de- I have to model out the decline of HCV sales. HCV is the hepatitis C. Um, so currently projecting like three and a half billion this year, and just declining by twenty percent a year after that. And if you and if you have a 20 to 15% decline per year, you're still receiving, you know, up to a billion dollars in earnings all the way through like 2025 from this Hep C business, which is very solid for the company. But what it means as well is that you're going to, you know, you're going to have growing earnings over time here, um, which is going to be very positive um, for the company. But as you look at this, from a valuation standpoint, it, it's somewhat difficult to determine really what number to work this out to because 
there's so many range of estimates. And that's why I kind of stick to conservatively estimating how Nash and the inflammation are going to come out. You don't want to spend a lot of money on those businesses. So really, I'm counting on the growth to primarily come from HIV. And any growth from Nash, you know, which is potentially $30 billion market, um, or the inflammation is really a plus at this point, because we, we should only really rely upon the kite business as an additional positive benefit. So when you're investing, the key is to be conservative. You don't want to rely on part of a business that could not be there. And clinical trials are a very risky method of bringing a product to market, but it's the key method that we have to do because safety first matters when you're treating patients. And you don't want to market a drug that doesn't actually work. So that's why we have these clinical trials. Um, But it is a key thing to remember when investing in a pharmaceutical company to not take for granted new products coming to market. So the only key areas I'm counting are the current two drugs, HIV and HCV. And the third area, which is oncology, which the drugs have already been, the initial drug has already been approved. So those are areas that are worth modeling and taking into account because it's already been proven. So when I modeled this out, I, you know, I, I come up with a, a valuation range of somewhere from like 90 to $100 or $125 per share. It's a very wide range because of the assumptions are very uncertain. But basically, they all worked out that you know, if I want to get a 10% return in this stock, I ha- I'm well below that range with the current prices from, you know, 70 to $75 per share because all of the range are coming up at 85, 90, 95, 100, 125. And you have that nice margin of safety where you could be wrong. Um, especially because all of them are using quite conservative numbers. For instance, the decline of hepatitis C sales could be overly aggressive. It's been declining by 20 or 30% each year recently, but management thinks that's going to level off. And if it levels off around $3 billion a year, instead of declining down to a billion a year, that's an extra $2 billion in revenue that I'm not taking into account. Um, so I'm pretty confident about when you're buying into this company that I've found a nice valuation. But it's also very uncertain because pharmaceuticals is a very competitive industry. So it's a company that you really have to understand the business and the industry before you invest in it. So it's just something I would encourage you if you're interested in this to really look into it and dive into it. Um, because although there's a lot of promise, there's also a lot of risk. Um, so let's think about some of these potential errors that you want to be concerned about. So first, you know, any sort of model, you have to be careful about patent expiration. I mentioned this earlier, patent expiration can really kill a pharmaceutical company um, and the value there because you're going to have very high earnings for a long period of time, and then those will drop off a cliff. And if you're not anticipating that, then you might not be ready for a large stock drop, stock price drop um, that accompanies it. Um, second area is, is that clinical trials are risky. One big thing that I've seen investors make a mistake on is counting their eggs before they hatch, basically. Um, just because a company has a drug in phase two or phase three trials, you know, essentially phase one is your safety testing. So just because it passed safety testing doesn't mean that it's effective. And just because it passes phase two trials doesn't mean that you're going to pass phase three. So 
until a drug is approved by the FDA, there's no guarantee that it will be approved by the FDA. And I know that's self-explanatory, but you have to be careful about taking into account growth from something that's not yet proven. And it's not yet proven until the FDA has approved it. Um, And I think that's a key area where investors make mistakes in pharmaceutical companies is they look too much at, look at all this R&D that the company is doing without being aware that all of that spending could be a waste. So in conclusion, I'm really interested in Gilead as a company. I've been following it for a few years now. um, And I've really watched this story unfold as their revenue has declined. And I think it's proven to be a nice opportunity to learn about the company, to learn about the pharmaceutical industry, and especially to learn about the, the cyclicality of pharmaceutical stocks. Because they make high profits, but they also have peaks and valleys in their profits as they go through some products and they transition into new products. And Gilead's in a transition time now. And from everything I've learned in the pharmaceutical industry thus far, I like buying companies that are in transition because usually when a company is in their peak earning years, the stock price is going to reflect that. And usually when a company is in transition and struggling with declining earnings, their stock price also reflects that. But if you can buy at a lower point, then you at least have the opportunity for positive surprise. And I would much rather have positive surprises than negative surprises. So that's it for this episode, discussing Gilead Sciences. Again, if you found this interesting, please drop a review on iTunes or another podcast place that you are listening from or send me an email. I would love to hear your comments. Again, my email is trey at diyinvesting.org. Your comments would be really helpful to know if this sort of episode is useful to you. Um, I'm just trying it out and seeing if this is interesting. Um, Talking through the stocks has been helpful for me because it helps me better understand um, why I'm interested in the stock and see if there's any errors in it. And again, this is a listener-supported program, so if you are interested in supporting the show and um, seeing continued content like this and others I've done before, considering becoming a patron, I really appreciate everyone who supports me and, and my whole audience, but I would absolutely appreciate anybody willing to become one of my patrons. And you can become a patron at DIYinvesting.org patron. That's DIYinvesting.org P-A-T-R-O-N. Thank you very much, and I will talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to the DIY Investing Podcast. Please visit our website and subscribe to our email list at DIYinvesting.org for guides, videos, and resources to help make you a better investor. The DIY Investing Podcast is presented for general informational and entertainment purposes only. I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile, and I have not provided investment advice. The information presented on the DIY Investing Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed on the DIY Investing Podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or sponsors. 
DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Henniger, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing podcast. This is your moment. Your moment to move forward and make progress. It's time to see where an education can take you. For over 130 years, Strayer University has been at the forefront of change, offering programs that help students like you get ahead and stay ahead, so you can keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by Chef.